And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on and the Aston Martin AMR21 broke cover today with what was the most revealing car launch yet. But what are its chances, and how are things going for the new Alpine, which made its on-track debut at Silverstone today? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to discuss F1's rebranded teams are Gary Anderson and Scott Mitchell. Well, Gary, let's go straight into the obvious question. How would you rate the Alpine and the Aston Martin launches out of 10? I'm expecting a disparity here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not, not wrong, Ed. Um, yeah, very, very different. Uh, if the car performance is as good as a the launch, then... Aston Martin have definitely uh, led the way. Uh, you know, everything was there. The car showed you around the car, the camera work. There was nothing, you know, hidden. Of course, there'd be developments, but nothing hidden. Um, and again, the team, you know, the drivers, the uh, Andrew Green, technical director, Otmar, and uh, and the man who pays the the, uh, the bills, all there. So, you know, they're all saying they're better. But, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a good car launch. And that's the important thing, say, uh, a good car launch. Alpine didn't really come into that um, area at all with car launch because what we saw was just a it was pretty bad um, and b you know there was nothing shown so again very very different uh, very very different technology used in in achieving it so yes different different world altogether. Scott, did you enjoy the return of what we've talked about before, which is the Lawrence Stroll? Uh, very, very natural on 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 camera. I know he's not there to do that. He's done a great job with everything else, but uh, he's not the most re- relaxed and natural, is he? No, there was um, there was a video that he did last year around the whole um, break duck scandal, copygate, whatever you want to call it. Where um, not to obviously, I want to call it a genre, but not to belittle the the genre, but it did look a little bit hostage video ish, and that sort of returned again. Uh, uh, but only very very briefly, but yeah, obviously can't criticise him for a lot of things, can you? He's uh, he's 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 pulled out all the stops, and I think the launch was a good embodiment of 
just uh, just what that team's evolved into. I mean, we we are here on this podcast with someone who who launched that team, designed and launched that team's first car, um, which was obviously a, a the one nine one's reveal was a world apart from what we saw with the AMR twenty one, wasn't it, Gary? <laughs> Yes, it was sitting in the corner of the uh, the workshop, Silverstone, or an empty workshop at Silverstone. Um, quite, yeah, very, very different world altogether. But, you know, the, the thing about the 191 launch was, or the, 91, uh, the 911 launch, as it was at that point in time, 911, as it was called at that time, you know, the car was complete. Um, there was a few people there that actually doubted the fact that, you know, the, the way the front wing was, and... Um, I quite happily jumped on one side of it for them just to dispel any myths that it was uh, it wasn't going to function. But yeah, the car was complete as was the the AMR twenty one today. Um, it was you know a complete car, so nice to see that. And um, it wasn't a hidden car. We didn't hide anything whenever uh, we were releasing it either. So yeah, very different world, um, but you know same same end end result. Not familiar, isn't it? A green car, the Silverstone team, Andrew Green there playing a key part in it. So it's it's just like old times for you. It's just like old times. It's nice to see the team up there, you know, see some of the guys that are still there. Quite a lot of the mechanics are now, you know, workshop based or whatever. But in general, the trend through from from 1990 to my last year there in 2003, um, you know, there's a lot of people still there. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's very good that way. So nice to see it. Nice to see that continuity. And, they, and they've worked hard. You know, they deserve the success that they're hopefully going to get through this this time in their life. It's the first time they've had the stability, really, to look forward to uh, to try to, to set themselves up to move forward. And I just hope that uh, they don't get pushed to try to achieve it too quickly because it's, it's not something that you can do, you know. You can have a good year for sure, but to actually build and plan and, and consistently have have good results, that takes a bit of deep planning and and structural, uh, you know, structural structural alignment, I suppose you might call it, to make sure it happens regularly. It's no, you know, flashing the puzzle is not what they need now, so let, let's make sure that they they just get that opportunity to do it properly. They seem to be being sensible, don't they, Scott? Because they talked about three to five years to be able to get to the world championship contending level and we saw lots of good things in place lots of sponsors the cognizant deal everything looking very good so it does seem like there's some realism with uh, the hype about the whole aston martin brand that they were really getting excited about yeah i i think um i think it's that i think it's that optimism for the well even the short term because obviously this became a race winning team last year but it's that optimism of not slipping back in the short term and then building something in the medium term that medium to long term works out really well for for the team and there's um that they will have a they will have a plan for that obviously a big part of that is going to be moving to the new factory finally saying well not a total goodbye to the uh to the original jordan workshop but because that will be absorbed into into their new sort of facilities um but the new factory uh at the end of 2022 and then, yeah, this three to five year plan of becoming a championship contender, being the most efficient team in the budget cap era is their aim. Obviously, bringing in Sebastian Vettel to help spot some, you know, help help them spot the gaps and work out what where they need to fill. They've, they're going to have the, the, the thing is they'll have the resources now to to run at the budget cap and know that their rivals are going to be um, 
pegged back and the AMR21 which we see now is it's it's the next step in that journey but not in the sense that this is going to be what bridges the gap to Mercedes or or, or anything like that because it's very much a continuation it's the green Mercedes now isn't it rather than the the the, the pink Mercedes but everything that they're talking about is it's about doing things in iterations and you have to say since Stroll came in and took over this team, you know, saved it from administration when it was Force India, he's made good on every promise. They said that the 2019 car wouldn't be that special because it was a, a legacy of the problems of 2018. That's exactly what happened. But then they said that they would definitely come out the blocks with something quite creative in 2020 and they did, even if that creative thing was copying what someone else has done. And he's obviously... He then said, we want it to be the Aston Works team. And I think what we saw today with the launch proved that in the modern definition, at least, this is the Aston Works team. This isn't Racing Point with a splash of green on it and claiming it's a different name. They are fully adopting that brand and identity and little flashy things around the launch, like the celebrity involvement and even getting uh, James Bond on, on, on camera as well. Um, it just shows that they are really leaning into that heavily. And it is the, I know other teams are annoyed by them and other teams don't think this is really Aston Martin and you can make a case either way for that. But it, this was the dawning of a new era and it bodes extremely well for this team. Well, I'm playing on that. As Lawrence Stroll explained, he's very excited to see No Time to Die, the new Bond film, as we all are. So that, that was uh, good. But Gary, let's have a look at the car now. The big structural things, 2020 Mercedes rear end. And they spent their tokens on the monocoque design. Potentially, it looks like, for a tweak to the side impact structures to get the side pods a bit now, or rather to the, the, the mounting of the structures, because the structures are a common structure. Yeah, um, it looks like that. Obviously, we haven't just got the final detail of that. Uh, it be interesting to see what, you know, what, what part it is, but it does look like the, the side impact structures have moved and that allows you to do the, the radiator inlets differently. Um, and it's not such a big compromise because the, the top part of the radiator inlet is a, is a fairly critical area for flow. It's very easy to get lift across that top surface, which obviously any lift you get there is, is contrary to creating downforce. But we don't know all of the detail of that, the token spend on the chassis, whether it's at the back of the chassis or the middle of the chassis. Um, as I say, there are some visual differences there, but it's hard to know the detail of it. Um, the 2020 Mercedes gearbox is obviously a major part. Um, as Mercedes himself, you know, pointed out last year, the the DAS steering was one thing, which obviously is gone for this year, um, and the the rear suspension was the other big thing for them to to open up that rear end to get more airflow in between the the rear tire and the coke bottle area to reduce the blockage, I suppose, or reduce the early blockage. I think is the best way of putting it, because the, the that, that's a sort of critical area. Um, to get the airflow to go through between there as opposed to having it pressurized in front of the rear tire, which means if it's got positive pressure there, it will try to go underneath the floor of the car very much quicker because you've got a low pressure area underneath the car. So that you just from a high pressure area to low pressure area, you get much more airflow passing than you would do if you've got two low pressure areas. So by, reduce, by reducing the blockage there, more airflow will go in through that area over the top of the diffuser, which helps the diffuser work better. Um, but it will also mean that the, the the pressure differential across the floor is a bit less. So there's less flow going underneath the floor, again, helping the diffuser work a bit better. So that, from my point of view, is a, is a good step 
with these new regulations of this floor, a bigger step than it would have been for last year's car relative to 2019, I suppose you might call it, when the floor regulations stayed the same. So I think that uh, definitely um, Aston Martin will, will, will benefit from that dramatically change from 2020 to 2021. Whereas obviously Mercedes have just got the same component as they had last year, so they won't get as big a benefit. They had their big benefit last year. So um, it'll be interesting to see. Um, we could have, you know, a bit of competition within the Mercedes teams. You know, we keep on looking around for, for somebody to be competitive with them. And it might be themselves that's going to hurt themselves. So uh, that would be an interesting scenario, wouldn't it? But that's exactly what they're aiming for, isn't it? I mean, speaking to Andy Green, he he is convinced that even with a customer model and as the Mercedes customer, this era of F1 that's coming in is an opportunity to beat your supplier because it's about, like, like as, as he puts it, I think the way he described it was, you know, removing the noise of having to worry about gearboxes and gearbox casings and stuff like that. They can focus on doing what they're good at, which is obviously they're now going to have added resources to do that job even better, doing a better job with aerodynamics, doing a better job with mechanical understandings of the car. It's a little bit like a much more advanced version of where Williams is trying to get to. That's basically what Williams is is trying to do in its new era. Um, so, so Aston's adamant that the model that they've got can can be a success and yeah obviously i think it would be stunning to look back on the 2021 season and say oh, i can't believe aston martin were able to fight mercedes over the course the course of the year but this is obviously about a much bigger thing than 2021 which is why again they've made such a big song and dance of the aston thing because it's just it's about so much more than than one new car and one new livery well 22 the development that's that's the big thing for them isn't it but it's great to see that we have actually seen evidence of of evolution there's a lot of just a lot of detail changes aerodynamically that's always interesting isn't it Gary it's not necessarily so much how they've changed it but just that it's it's just tidier and it just looks like there's more effort has been able to go into just all these little tiny things that add up yeah they do add up I mean that that is the thing with the regulations the way they currently are for 2021 it, it's about attention to detail. Every little detail will, will help you. It's some of the all of those that actually ends up giving you the total improvement. So, you know, there is no revolution within the 2021 cars. There is nothing you can do to to think, oh, here we go. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll really get excited about this bit and do something completely different. You know, the bars boards have been invented. The, the diffusers have been invented. It's just adapting to those small changes in aerodynamics. They're small changes theoretically, but they're actually big changes performance-wise. So adapting to that, which the teams have all got the same tools, the wind tunnel tools, CFD tools, the knowledge, it, it's not its not completely different. It's not like what we're getting for 2022. You know, It's not completely different. It's a, a slight change on what they already understand. So all the functionality of all the componentry on the car is going to be doing the same things. You just change the priorities a little bit as to how they operate whether they operate more for the, the front corner of the floor or they operate more more for the back corner of the floor. So it's not a complete... You don't have to go away and scratch your head and think about how I'm going to do this. It's just a continuation of what you had before, doing it a little bit differently. So all those small details, I say, for every team are very, very important. And what I saw with, with uh, the Aston Martin today, it looks like they've attacked all those small details. You know, you, you just look at the bulge on the engine cover on the Mercedes relative to the bulge on the engine cover on the Aston Martin. You know, they've either got a bigger bit inside that they have to cover 
or they've covered it a bit tighter. And that means it's, the, the bulge shows a bit more on that side of the engine cover. Love to know what's in there, but obviously it's something, something that has to be cleared. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was the plenums dropping down a little bit lower. You know, again, the detail of that means the centre of gravity is going to be a little bit lower. So all of these things are positive. But as I say, the, the Aston Martin definitely is clothed a bit tighter than the Mercedes for the same engine unit, engine package. So that's all great detail. Again, as I said in my, my article, or you'll see in my article, it just needs to make sure the cooling's okay because, uh, you know, that's a critical area um, that you can often miss a little bit. But I don't expect Aston Martin to miss the cooling on the car. I think they're one of the things they were pretty good at was, was maintaining a, a good level of performance relative, relative to cooling. The big thing that um, the big thing that I've taken away from this launch, and I think the all the stuff that you were sort of able to, to reference there, Gary, and have talked about so far, is the 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 uh, the, breadth, uh, the depth and breadth of imagery that we've had of this car um, has dwarfed anything that any other team has put out, and it's all been relevant to what looks like the genuine 2021 car as well. I'm sure this is the launch version, and there will be iterations that we see, yep. but. Even little things like Mercedes obviously made it very, they were secretive, but openly secretive because they said, you know, we're not going to show you what we've done at the back of the floor because then that gives other teams a couple of weeks to work it out. But I, I, I don't know if, I don't think I'm making this up, but it looked like this was the first time we saw like proper detail at the back of the floor where, where it, the rules have changed. And, you know, Andy Green was saying that for all, obviously there is, as you were explaining, Gary, this so so much similarity with last year. Andy Green was at pains to point out how much work has gone into just making sure they don't get tripped up by this uh, by 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 the floor changes. And he's saying, you know, the, the rear suspension of the Merc or the rear end of the Merc for 2020, introducing that is one of the main areas. But the other ones are these four aero changes. So he was he so so keen. <laughs> to sort of not deflect attention, but just to bring attention to the fact that that is something that they've worked really hard on. And just to actually see elements of that, details of that, was so refreshing after this sort of hit, like hidden launch season we've had so far. And Gary, what do you make of the, the floors? Do you think that that's kind of a pucker 21 floor with the kind of detail? Or do you think Aston have got a more detailed one they're going to bolt on? Um, I would be I'd be surprised if there wasn't something in the pipeline. Um, I would think that it's probably a reasonable solution at this point in time, what we're seeing there. Um, but I would be surprised if there wasn't um, more complex uh, turning vein packages coming for that for that area. It's just about trying to stop the, as I say, the, the, the tyre, obviously there's a big high pressure point builds up in front of that tyre. If you saw a CFD analysis, it's, you know, in front of that rear tyre is, is a big high pressure point. And you're trying to get that to pass around the, either the outside of the floor if you can, but that's that's limited now with the the, uh, the generation of the vortex that seals the floor. Um, if it goes underneath the floor, it just destroys the diffuser, it reduces the diffuser performance. So you're trying to get that to go down the cook bottle area um, between the wheel and the, and the bodywork. So that's really that's really the objective. And the work on the rear brake ducts, which we haven't really seen in detail in any car because it's a really complicated little area to get a camera in there. Um, that will be part of that as well. And that's a, a slightly different learning curve because the the brake duct on the rear of the car isn't really a brake duct. It's a mounting device for a load of turning vanes. And as James Allison himself said, you know, those those turning vanes do give you some downforce in their own right. Um, 
And that downforce is, is really important because it's directly onto the tire. It doesn't have the lag of going through the suspension. You know, whenever you watch the car moving up and down, there's a lag. If, if the car's on the way up, the downforce is reduced dramatically. If the car's on the way down, the load on the tire is increased dramatically. So that's a, a change on that load path that the driver feels quite quite dramatically. But the turning vanes on the rear brake ducts are a constant. They're pushing on the contact pipe, so there's no lag in it. So that's a very critical area, and that's an area where there will be a lot more development, unseen development yet. So those little turning vanes on the floor, the turning vanes on the brake ducts, um, are going to be quite critical to consistency of downforce into the rear tyre. So we just have to uh, have to let the, the boffins get on with finding the best solution. And I'm sure we'll see changes on every car. The other thing that's encouraging there as well is new driver in Sebastian Vettel. He had a press conference uh, earlier today where he seems quite at home. He was saying how kind of welcoming the, the, the team had been. So I'm hoping we'll see that the best of him this year. I did actually ask him, uh, if if he felt he was going to have the car to allow him to show his best form rather than what I did describe his last year performance as substandard, which he said was uh, very flattering. He thanked me for that uh, that comment, but we know how good he can be and he wasn't that last year. But I think this could be really positive and he could have a great influence on Lance Stroll as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. That's the driver pairing that could go so much one way or the other. And I really hope it's, uh, it's positive. Uh, but we should briefly talk about Alpine. Not such a great launch, but let's just quickly, Scott, get you to clarify what exactly is going on with the, the team management. We've talked about this before, and they've sort of clarified it. Yeah, um, basically, they don't have a team principal, and they won't have a team principal. Um, the The role will be, the responsibilities, rather, will be split between executive director, Martin Bukowski, who, to all intents and purposes, is the team boss overseeing the, especially what's going on at Enstone and Viri. We know that he's been a, a key part of managing the expansion at Enstone and just bringing that up up to standard properly over the last couple of years since his arrival. And Davide Brivio, who's obviously been recruited from winning the MotoGP title with Suzuki last year, uh, Davide will be racing director, and that basically means running the the, the track side. Um, part of the team so he'll be in charge of everything that happens at the circuit um i i don't i i did wonder initially if that basically just made uh brivio a sort of glorified team manager but the actual the team manager's position is very different and it's very very important so i wouldn't want to belittle it i think he's going to bring a lot of experience from he managing people is what he's said to have been most effective at and just super super skilled people person just able to bring together different cultures and different personalities he will need that and then some at Alpine given the variety of people in, involved not least obviously Fernando Alonso who uh, Brivio has uh, described yesterday as yeah, like intense but Brivio likes that he he says you know this te- team needs a driver that's basically going to kick him up the backside but um, I can see there being some logic to it. You've got someone who is a devoted trackside person, goes to every single race, and then you've got someone who is good at management, not managing people necessarily, not to say that Budkowski isn't, but managing departments and managing a company. He then runs the show back at base and goes to races as and when he's needed to. So I can sort of see the logic, but where it falls down to me is that this means that the buck stops with the new Alpine CEO, Lauren Rossi, I don't want to do him a disservice, but I don't know what he knows about F1, let alone running a, a Formula One team. 
So if that means that Brivio and uh, Budkowski are on the same level, which they must be because they're both reporting to Rossi, so that is, that suggests that in the hierarchy they're on the same plane, then where, where does the... Does, so the buck stops with Rossi, but he doesn't really know the best way to make the decisions. I It doesn't really make sense to me, but you know, Gary's got a lot more experience of working in F1 teams that, 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 than I do. Would you have been happy being technical director of a team about a team principal, Gary? Just, just to interrupt that, you had something not a million miles from that when you went back to Jordan, didn't you? Because you were kind of head of making it work at the track and there was a separate technical director. Um. Yes, it was a bit different, but you know, I, I would say that my return to Jordan was that I was sort of racing director, whatever you like to call it. I was sort of going to took on the charge of of what was um, happening at the circuit um, because it, you know, as I say, technical director being heavily involved at the circuit and being heavily involved back at base, a bit like uh, Benotto at Ferrari at the minute, it's a very difficult thing because. You know, there's a there's a grey area that comes between the two of them. That, that you know, the track might not get the best out of the car, the car design might not allow the best to be got out of the car. So I think the best solution for me is to have um, a technical director that's responsible for the design of the car, and uh, a racing director who's responsible for the the actions at the track, um, and the fact of being very open with each other to the fact of whether you got the best out of the car on a given weekend, or whether the car's design or characteristics are limiting your your performance. Um, so yes, I had we had that sort of situation, but we also had on top of that then um, a, a sort of consultant managing director, which made it even more grey at Jordan. Um, he he was there when I left, and he was there when I came back. Um, not for much longer after that, to be honest. But um, it was one of those sort of situations where it was it was too clouded. People were, were able to hide behind each other too much. And I think, uh, you know, in, in the Alpine thing, I, I see that now, the same sort of deal. You know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing if you start, start hiding behind each other a little bit, blaming each other. And, you know, when I, when I stopped doing Formula One with Jordan, I, I did a little bit of consultancy with Honda at, at um, Brackley, which is now the Mercedes thing. And, and that was one of the biggest problems they had as well. You, you went in there and had a chat with a few of them just to see what was going on. And everybody was trying to blame everybody else. And that's really where Mercedes have sort of set the standard with hopefully what they say being true as far as making sure that you have a no-blame culture. Everybody can have their input. Um, at the end of the day, there's, there's, there's people there that are going to make the choices of direction. And as I say, Mercedes do that better than anybody else. And I, I think that Renault have failed to sort of realise that. They've they've probably gone the opposite direction. It's all collided with people that either are new into Formula One, um, like um, the guy from Suzuki, or they are, you know, not being involved in, in motorsport really at all. And, and it's, that makes it very, very difficult to find that channel of direction and find that opening and opportunity for input to be had by all um, because you just don't know who you're you're, you're working for. Well, before we, we finish off with Gary's appraisal of the car, Scott, it's worth just a quick talk about the, the engine, isn't it? Because they talked a little bit about future engines and also how much of a step they've made this year because Mercedes, Scott, talked about how much they've done and we know how much Honda have done. So where, where does Renault stand in all of this? Uh, well, it is... Obviously, I don't know where exactly where all four engine manufacturers ended up last year, but I think they might be at risk of falling to the back of the pile just purely because... 
the, there's been a change in timeline with everything that they've wanted to do. And essentially, the 2021 engine is the upgraded engine they would have had in 2020, which means they're behind schedule because Honda and um, Honda and Mercedes brought an upgraded engine to Austria. So what was going to be their upgrade? first upgrade or second upgrade in 2020 ended up being the engine they ran the in 2020 season with and they have subsequently upgraded those engines again for 2021 Renault didn't introduce an upgraded engine for the eventual start of the season in Austria last year and they're only now introducing that upgrade so if you see what I mean they're unless they were planning an absolutely mega in-season development on the engine last year they're not going to make the same step as everybody else but the trade-off for that is they have basically postponed a much bigger engine change for, for 2022, which is almost certainly going to be a change in concept, probably to the Mercedes split turbo and compressor, um, which which is very significant. Um, and that also incorporates a pair of updates. They were originally going, when they postponed the new engine to 2022, they were going to introduce the new concept and then upgrade it again in 2023. Because of the early engine freeze, they can't do that. So now everything's being packed into 2022. So bodes sort of better for them in the long term. But I, the way I read that situation, I, I, I don't expect um, massive progress um, th- th- this year. And obviously we know that Ferrari is on the, on the recovery curve after its dismal year last year. Um, and Honda's obviously building this all new engine that is brought forward from 2022 for Red Bull. So, and obviously Mercedes isn't going to go backwards, is it? So I, I don't really see Renault being, um, at the top of the power stake, shall we say? Well, then moving on from that, let's have a look at, at the car, Gary. Now we saw a few launch shots. The car has run successfully today at Silverstone in the hands of Esteban Ocon. They said it was quite an uneventful filming day, which is great. That's exactly what you want on a shakedown, but we haven't really seen the details. So what have you been able to glean from what we've seen of the Alpine car so far? Well, it's exactly as you say, Ed, we weren't really able to see the details. You know, the car wasn't really part of the launch. There were some pictures there, uh, pretty bad pictures, and it's a lovely color scheme i like the color scheme personally i think it'll stand out quite well on tv but it's also a confusing color scheme because it's very difficult to see things if you just take the general principles you know if you look at i suppose red bull and you look at mercedes and you look at uh, the aston martin today you know the side pod detail um relative to the the uh, the alpine side pod detail it's a different dimension you know they've They've got a much bigger Coke bottle down the bottom section, but the other the other two teams really, you know, just cling wrap the, the bodywork, the radiators, and all that sort of detail inside of there. So either Renault uh, for their engine, uh, which is in, obviously in the Alpine, need more cooling, bigger radiators. There's something restricting them from really getting that close wrapping around the radiator and, and then moving the sort of cross-sectional area, the biggest cross-sectional area, as far forward as possible. If you if you took these cars and sliced them crosswise, you know, laterally, um, all the way through the car, you know, you, you can't you can't magically change the airflow volume change as you go back through the car. You want you want to try and change that sec- cross sectional area as as sort of smoothly as possible, so the airflow has a, an opportunity to stay attached to the surfaces and go around all those other bits so if you if you you know chop the car across the rear axle you've got the two wheels and you've got the the 
the gearbox section and the bodywork around that gearbox section. And if you chop the car up through where the, the driver sits, you've got the radiators and you've got the driver cockpit area, all that sort of stuff. Those two cross-section areas don't want to be that dramatically different from each other. Um, because, you know, that airflow, it's like a, it's like a dolphin swimming through water. You know, it, it doesn't have quick changes of section. And a racing car, because it's got extra bits here and there, it has to be the same, really. Otherwise, the airflow is going to go everywhere. So there's basic principles. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that, that the Alpine has been able to, for some reason, exploit those basic principles as far as they should do. Um, we'll see. You know, we're, what, just over a week away from, from the cars turning their, their wheels in Bahrain. Um, a lot of work to do before before that, but we are just you know just over a week away. So the only time we'll ever know is when testing begins, and it'll be interesting to see who has done what. Again, even after testing, we won't know you know before we get to the first race. But I didn't see anything on the on the Alpine that I thought would, was taking it a step forward from last year. I'm sure there is small details, but I didn't see that step change. Yeah, we saw a few little details like the integration of the nose to the to the K but it's all it all just seems sort of fiddling doesn't it it's a little bit worrying because Alpine it's got so much potential because it is a full works team so we keep hoping it'll get there but then you you compare it to Aston Martin you can't help but do it as an unfavorable comparison not least because Alpine seemed to struggle even with their internet bandwidth when it came to broadcasting their launch life yeah I mean again all of the teams right through from the from the front to the back will have done those small detail changes because they have a car and uh, the regulations have stayed relatively simple so there's lots of areas on the car where you'll be looking at small detail changes just to tidy it all up and optimize it but you know what you see of aston martin today they've done those small detail changes plus plus quite a substantial amount more and you know obviously we've got them mclaren which we keep not mentioning really much but you know they've got the the big advantage of moving on to uh, to the Mercedes power unit, um, but again, you know I haven't really looked at the McLaren in detail since then. But I didn't see their bulges on the bodywork to clear whatever it is that the the engine requires clearing for. So maybe their bodywork is you know a bit bigger. Um, they got bitten with that zero zero bodywork size with the Honda, so maybe they're reluctant to go to a, a zero bodywork size, but. You know, obviously there's different avenues and different ways of doing stuff, but yeah, the Aston Martin to me, again, I'm a little bit biased because, it, you know, a lot of the people there are from, you know, the past, you know, nice guys and guys that I worked with and hopefully brought into Formula One. But um, I did I did think it was an impressive little package, lots of detail on it, uh, lots of solid detail, lots of good reasons for, for going in certain directions. And, you know, I think they've they've done a good job. Yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting to see how the two teams get on, but Aston Martin certainly grabbing most of the headlines. Well, thanks very much, Gary Anderson and Scott Mitchell, for your insights. We'll be back probably on Friday with a look at the new Williams. There is a Haas launch on Thursday, but that's basically a livery launch, so there's not going to be a great deal to talk about car-wise when it comes to that. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there, including Gary's analysis of the two cars. And also check out our YouTube channel. Just search for The Race and, of course, sister podcast title, Bring Back V10s. Thanks very much. Join us on Friday for everything you need to know about the Williams.